The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 124, a song of ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive. When their wrath was kindled against us, then the waters would have overwhelmed us. The stream would have gone over our soul. Then the swollen waters would have gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. All right, we are in Deuteronomy 32 verses 34 through 43. This will actually finish the song itself, but it's there's still more in this chapter to go. So Deuteronomy 32 and starting in verse 34. Is this not laid up in store with me? sealed among my treasures. Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them, for the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining bond or free, he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. Now see that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I whet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh. With the blood of the slain and the captives, from the heads of the leaders of the enemy, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people." If you grab the pages of the epistles of Paul between two fingers, it is an astonishingly slim body of writing. Try it and you will actually be amazed at how thin it is. And yet the people have been debating and arguing over what Paul wrote for 2,000 years. And this isn't simply because no one has sat down and analyzed his words closely to determine their exact meaning. Every single word has been studied and analyzed. They have been counted and compared. They have been meditated upon and memorized by innumerable, really intelligent scholars. People argue over the meaning of many words, verses, and concepts in those few pages, gleefully claiming they have the truth. And those of an opposing view are just a bunch of heretics. Despite this, one thing is for sure. If you don't thoroughly know the man and his point of reference, you will never understand what he is saying in many cases. And the only way to know those things is to know the body of literature in which he was schooled. Paul was a Pharisee, 
and he was of Israel. You must look at the scriptures that formed him to understand what he is saying. If you don't, you will misread the intent of his words. There is another problem. Our own incorrect presuppositions, unless they are corrected, we will continue to be faulty until we finally stand before the Lord and are corrected by him personally. Our text verse comes from Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. In those verses, Paul cites the words of Deuteronomy 32 that we will look at today. He quoted Moses there in Romans, and the author of Hebrews uses it in a different context as well. Though not named, it is pretty certain that Hebrews was also written by Paul. Since Paul's writing consistently quotes the Old Testament, having a knowledge of it gives needed context. Because if you don't have it, you will never properly understand what he is saying. In getting these things wrong, your understanding of our state now and of what is coming in the future as well will be skewed. This includes the book of Revelation because what we will look at today is a foundational part of what will later be revealed there. It is so good that you are joining us as we look at each word, clause, and verse of this unbelievably marvelous piece of literature. It opens up what lies ahead and it presents it to Israel and to us in a remarkable manner. Yes, great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is, where are their gods? It's verses 34 through 39. While going through the verses of this poem, we've been following a breakdown of them that I made concerning their structure. In the previous section, which was 28 through 33, the evident nature of Israel's unworthiness to be spared was detailed. And because of this, it highlighted that they have been, in fact, spared. Now, verses 34 through 38 reveal the wisdom of allowing Israel to be brought to a state of utter calamity. When all of the other gods they pursue fail to deliver, that leads to verse 39, which reveals that Jehovah has, through his interaction with Israel, demonstrated that he alone is God. With that understood, we now enter into these verses. Verse 34, is this not laid up in store with me? Halo hu kamus imadi. They, I inserted the word they so that you can understand the context, they not stored with me? Here is another word found only this once in the Bible, kamas. It comes from a primitive root meaning to store away. As such, it is used here figuratively to mean stored in the memory. What is this referring to? There are varying views. One is that this is speaking of what will next be said concerning vengeance and wrath. I would disagree and say that it is looking back to what was already stated in order to then form a reason for what will be stated. In order to see this, one has to go back to the first verse of the previous section, which is verse 28. For they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. As such, most translations here are wrong, saying this in the singular. Is this not? However, 
two things are being referred to, counsel and understanding. One can see how Moses is carefully weaving together the case against Israel, while at the same time, he is carefully demonstrating the righteousness of the Lord in how he carries out his plans. He sets forth a premise, demonstrates how Israel fails based on that premise, and then calls the premise back to mind by showing that the qualities presented there actually belong to the Lord. As such, if Israel would have followed sound advice, as is found in the Proverbs, they would have avoided all of these ills. Here's what it says in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Of this store of understanding and counsel, Moses next asks, verse 34 continues, sealed up among my treasures, chatum be'otsrotai, sealed in my treasuries. The word is otsar, it signifies a treasury, a place for depositing things, but it is in the plural construct. As such, it is referring to the secret places where the counsel and understanding of the Lord are kept away. A similar rendering is found in 1 Kings chapter 15. Now there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. And Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries, that word that we're looking at, of the house of the Lord and the treasuries, again, that same word, of the king's house, and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And king Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, king of Assyria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me as there was between my father and your father. See, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Come and break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. If one were to spend every moment of every day seeking new knowledge, such treasuries of the Lord could be considered. Within the minutest particle, there are treasuries of wisdom where atoms, protons, electrons, and so on spin and whirl. In DNA, there are sequences that work in a four-dimensional manner, where time itself is figured into the operation. The treasuries of the Lord's counsel and understanding are infinite. Each is sealed up, awaiting the time when it is to be opened in order to show forth the splendor of His wisdom. And in the unfolding narrative of time, the storehouses of understanding and counsel are opened up to reveal His hand in the details of what occurs. And to show that it is he who has done it, he has given the prophetic word to show us that it is so. In the structure of the verse, one can see how the Lord, as revealed through Moses, identifies these storehouses directly with himself. As such, where his counsel and wisdom are kept, they then form an expression of who he is. It's an A-B pattern. They, not stored with me, B, sealed in my treasuries. You see the parallel with me in my treasuries. The treasures of the Lord are a reflection of who the Lord is. Verse 35, vengeance is mine and recompense. Li nakam veshil em, to me, vengeance and recompense. Here the noun shil em is seen in its only use in the Bible. It is a repayment or a requital. The idea of the previous thought now naturally leads into this one. Israel is a nation lacking prudence and understanding. These are found in the Lord, 
But Israel has rejected the Lord and gone their own perverse way. Therefore, he will display his counsel and his understanding by bringing forth his vengeance and recompense. One thing leads to the next. Now, while I'm reading you these things, think of Israel today. I'm not talking about Israel 1,000 or 2,000 years ago. I'm talking about right now. Verse 35 continues, their foot shall slip in due time. Le'et tamut raglam. To time shall waver their foot. Notice the use of the plural and the singular together. Their foot. Israel is a people. It is as if they are on a climb through the ages and they are successfully progressing. But then they suddenly come to a point that is unstable and precipitous. At this point, they have to tread carefully, but they cannot. Their foot begins to waver because their strength fails them. Verse 35 continues, for the day of their calamity is at hand. Kikarov yom edam, for near day their calamity. It is a new word, ed, calamity or ruin is probably the best way to express the thought. To understand what is being articulated, all we need to do is look at what is going on in the world in relation to Israel today. Israel will be at a point where they have climbed the hill. They are on the way to the summit. They have attained the status among the nations that they absolutely crave, proving that it is by their hand, their might, their innovation, their smarts, and their superiority that they have gone from nothing to the epitome of national grandeur. But then their foot will slip and their calamity will be right in front of them. Verse 35 continues, and the things to come hasten upon them. And hasten readied, I inserted the word things so that you can understand what he's talking about, and hastened readied things to them. Again, Moses pulls out a new word, atid. It is an adjective coming from a word meaning to be ready. As such, it is a way of saying that there are things that have been prepared to occur. And at that time, when their foot begins to give way, those readied things will come rushing upon them. This is the tribulation period without a doubt. One can think of someone strolling along life's highway, thinking everything is fine, but because he has rejected the Lord, certain disaster lies ahead. A perfect example of this would be the king of Babylon, as is seen in Daniel 4. He was thinking everything was great, and all of a sudden, what happens? At the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. This is what it will be like for Israel. They will look around assured of their greatness, and everything will collapse around them, all because they failed to include the Lord in their devices. Our text verse today cited a portion of this verse. Likewise, it is used by the author of Hebrews to remind Hebrew believers of that to which Moses refers, meaning the unchanging character of God in regard to such things. Here's what it says, Hebrews 10. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy? 
who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In looking at this verse, it is seen that the first clause sets up what is presented in the next three clauses. To me, to me, vengeance and recompense. To time shall waver their foot for near day their calamity and hasten readied things to them. So to me, their foot, their calamity, to them. It is in this setting up of the events of the future to demonstrate his very nature that the Lord then acts. Verse 36, for the Lord will judge his people. Ki yadin Yehovah amo, for will judge Yehovah his people. Depending on who is commenting, this is taken as a judgment of Israel or a judgment for Israel. What seems likely to me is that it is both. The words have all led to the thought that Israel is in need of being judged. This is a given. But if the Lord were to judge them according to their conduct, they would be utterly obliterated as a people. But that would be to violate the very covenant promises that he had obligated himself to. Thus, as the Bible later reveals, he will allow the nations to be his means of judgment upon Israel, while at the same time he will judge against the nations in favor of Israel. Exactly what happened with Babylon. He used Babylon as the rod of his judgment, and then he went and judged Babylon. Verse 36 continues, and have compassion on his servants. Ve'al avadav yitnecham, and upon his servants he will comfort. The sense appears to be properly explained by Albert Barnes. The verse declares that God's judgment of his people would issue at once in the punishment of the wicked and in the comfort of the righteous. This will come about, verse 36 continues, when he sees that their power is gone. Ki yire ki azelat yad, for he sees for is disappeared hand. And yet another new word comes in, azal. It signifies to go. As something goes, it is then gone, disappeared. The hand signifies authority, ability, power, and so on. In this case, it is specifically their power that is being referred to. A really good way of thinking of this might be Israel's modern Iron Dome system. They do and will rely on it for their protection. And indeed, how incredible it was to see it perform recently. Hundreds of things coming in over Tel Aviv, and they're all being targeted and taken out by the Iron Dome. It was astonishing to see. But once the war was over, it desperately needed to be replenished. The U.S. agreed and sent them replacements. <laughs> Israel is used to simply buying more, getting better, relying on their own power and might to forge ahead. However, someday... There will be no more replacements. Israel will want to buy more, but that will be a problem. There will be no more aid. They will stand naked and exposed, readied for total defeat. Verse 36 continues, and there is no one remaining, bond or free. The clause here forms an alliterative paronomasia, ve'efes atsur ve'azuv, and none restraining and relinquishing. The words speak of the state of the people. There are those who are at home, and there are those who head out. 
There are those who are getting married and those who are getting divorced. There are those who are having children and those whose children are grown up and moving away. It is simply a way of saying this refers to everybody. The second two clauses of this verse give an explanation for what is stated in the first two. And within the sets there are obvious comparisons that I have set off with matching characters. If you're watching online, you're not going to see it unless you go to the sermon. But I've got a character to match everything up. It's an A-A-B-B pattern, but there are matchings within it. For will judge Jehovah his people, and upon his servants he will comfort. For he sees, B, for is disappeared hand, B, and none restraining and relinquishing. Verse 37, he will say, where are their gods? Ve'amar ae Elohemo. And he said, where? Their gods. It is almost a mocking of their stupidity. They have trusted in vapor. Anything they thought they could rely on has vanished. And the Lord looks down upon them knowing what they would be without him. But instead of worshiping him, they had squandered away everything by hiding within futility. Verse 37 continues, the rock in which they sought refuge. Sur chasayu bo, rock they refuged in. Again, there is a new verb, chasa. It means to seek refuge. As before, the thought of the Iron Dome comes to mind. To the mind of the people, it is almost a god of protection that encompasses them. We are invincible because of what we have created. And so the Lord lets them simmer in their giddiness knowing that it is a system of tinker toys that simply cannot be trusted. This is a good analogy to the words of this clause. Where is your trust? That is what Israel should contemplate and resolve, but only when the answer is the Lord. This verse contains a statement leading into two parallel clauses. And he said, A, where their gods, A, rock they refuged in. Verse 38 who ate the fat of their sacrifices. The New King James Version makes this verse into a question, but it is a statement of fact, and maybe it is even an exclamation concerning the gods just mentioned. Also, the verb is imperfect. Asher chelev zebachemo yokelu. Who fat their sacrifices, they eat. It is as if the gods of Israel are sitting down having a feast while the people are being eradicated. The people offered to these false gods, and they are too busy enjoying themselves, enjoying the offerings to care what is going on around them. Verse 38 continues, and drank the wine of their drink offering. Yishtu yen nesikam, they drank wine, their libations. The sense of mocking continues. It's a real party as the gods fill themselves up on what has been offered. Hey, pour out some more wine. Israel's gods, that are no gods at all, are having a party, while the nation is on the brink of utter ruin. If Israel's been making offerings to these gods, well then, verse 38 continues, let them rise and help you. The verbs are imperfect, adding to the taunting effect. Yakumu ve yazurukhem. They are rising and they helping you. It is as if the Lord is saying, here they come now, any minute. They just have to finish another bite. Maybe a bit more wine too. Hold on, hold on. And with that, he then says, verse 38 continues, and be your refuge. The words begin with a Joseph. Yehi alechem sitra. 
may it be over you haven. The sense is that they have chosen their worthless gods that are too busy dining on their offerings to do anything else. But the Lord says, tough. You want them to protect you, then they are your hiding place, your haven. Once again, think of Iron Dome. That's exactly what's going on in Israel right now. And then he says, see how that works out. In this verse, the first two clauses are set in parallel, but turned around for effect, while the second two are parallel with the first anticipating a fulfilled action in the second, A-A-B-B. Who fat their sacrifices they eat, they drink, wine their libations. B, they are rising and they helping you. May it be over you, haven. Verse 39, now see that I, even I, am he. There is a strong emphasis in the Hebrew. Reu ata ki ani, anihu. See now, for I, I, he. The Lord is adamantly telling Israel to open their eyes and to understand. There are no other gods, not even one. He alone is God, and he alone called them and established them. And yet, they have to open their eyes before they can see it. The sediment that is pronounced here is partially repeated in various ways in Isaiah 41 through Isaiah 46. None stated exactly, but an example is found in the word of the Lord to the pagan king Cyrus. Here's what it says in Isaiah 45. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create the darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Likewise, the next clause is found in the same section of Isaiah and elsewhere in Isaiah as well. Verse 39 continues, and there is no God besides me. Ve'en Elohim imadi, and no God with me. There is God and there are gods. There is no contradiction in saying this if the reference is understood. What is clearly being stated is that Jehovah is God. He alone. Any other God is a part of what he has created, but with him, there is no God. It is something that can be logically deduced. Because there is existence, say, you and me, then God, meaning a necessary being, must exist. This is undeniable as a truth, and because God cannot create another one and only God, therefore there must be, by default, only one God. This is all explained in the Genesis 1-1 sermon using what are known as the first principles. What the Lord states here is to be taken as an axiom. Israel has failed to complete its courses on logic and on theology proper. And for now, the Lord speaks on. Verse 39 continues, I kill and I make alive. The verbs are imperfect. Ani amit ve I, I terminate, and I life sustain. The power of both life and death belong to the Lord alone. What he decides should end will be terminated, and what he determines should continue will continue. This phrase was remembered and then quoted by Hannah in her prayer at the dedication of Samuel to the Lord. She knew her Bible. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. Along with this, the Lord speaks further. 
verse 39 going on, I wound and I heal. The second verb is imperfect, adding to the dramatic effect. Machashti va'ani erpa. I have shattered and I heal. One might think of the world at the flood. It was broken up and destroyed, shattered and thrown into complete confusion. Yet, in the shortest of spans, Noah and his family simply walked off the ark and began life again. Israel, too, will be crushed and shattered along with the entire world. But the Lord will return it to a state of healing not seen before the events of the tribulation took place. All of this is from the workings of the Lord. Verse 39 continues, Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. Ve'en miyadi matzil. And no, from my hand, deliver. In verse 36, the hand or power of Israel was demonstrably gone. But here in verse 39, the power of the Lord, his hand is said to be without limit. There is none who can deliver from it. What he determines to hold will be held and what he determines to destroy will be destroyed. His hand is effectual in power to begin and to complete. Again, the words are picked up later in Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, 13, Indeed, before the day was, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? In this verse, the first clause is parallel to the second and third clauses, while the second is parallel to the fifth. A, B, A, A, B. Wonderful structure. A, see now, for I, I, he, B, and no God with me. A again, I terminate, and I life sustain. A again, I have shattered, and I heal, and then B, and no from my hand deliver. Marvelous words from Moses. Who is God like me, near or far? Who can deliver from my hand? Can you open what I do not leave ajar? Can you thwart that which I have planned? There is no other God, no, not one. There is none other at all like me. None can even attempt what I have done. To even think it so demonstrates great stupidity. I am God who has established you for me. And I am God whom you have rejected. You spurned my coming and nailed me to a tree. In this, your flawed streak is detected. Turn, O Israel, turn unto me. I am your God who came down from that tree. Our second thought today, rejoice you nations, his people. It's verses 40 through 43. Verses 40 through 42 will next call out the judgment of the nations for failing to recognize what God has done, which is manifestly evident through his treatment, meaning establishment, care for, spurning of, punishment upon, sparing, and defense of Israel. Verse 40, For I raise my hand to heaven, ki esa el shamayim yadi, for I lift unto heaven's my hand. The thought is that of making a proclamation and an oath. It is seen, for example, in Revelation 10. Here's what it says there. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Verse 40 continues and say, as I live forever. 
ve'amarti chai anochi le'olam. And I say, live I to eternity. The word olam signifies that which is concealed, the vanishing point. It can mean forever or something less. But in the case of the proclamation here, because of the one who makes it, it signifies to eternity itself. The words then mean, what I am about to say is as inviolate as is my very being. It stands and will stand untouched and pure. This is an A-B pattern where the first clause prepares the way for the second. A, for I lift unto heavens my hand. B, and I say, live I to eternity. Verse 41, if I whet my glittering sword, imshanoti perak harbi. If I whet brilliance, my sword. It's very hard to translate because there's a noun there instead of a verb and everybody just makes it a verb. I'm trying to stay as exact with the Hebrew as possible. The scene now is personal as Jehovah is likened to a warrior. The if makes the statement conditional and yet assured it will happen and the result will not be thwarted. Verse 41 continues, and my hand takes hold on judgment. Vetochez bemishpat yadi and grasps in judgment my hand. It is referring to the sword of brilliance that has been wedded. With the wedding and the grasping of it in judgment, there will be an inevitable and unstoppable result. Verse 41 continues, I will render vengeance to my enemies. Ashiv nakam le tsarai. I will return vengeance to my adversaries. The word tsar comes from a word signifying narrow. Hence, it speaks of those who are crowded in against. God is God. Any who crowd in on him are adversaries to him. To come against that which is his, such as Israel, is to come against him. In such an instance, does everybody remember that from Acts chapter 9? When the Lord said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? When he was persecuting the church, to come against his people is to come against him. In such an instance, by crowding in on the Lord or on what is his, he will return vengeance. The prospects for those who do so are not good. Not good indeed. And more, verse 41 continues, and repay those who hate me. Ve limsanai ashalem. And to those hating me, I repay. The idea is that to those who hate Jehovah, there is a debt to be paid before there can be a state of completion. Without that, the debt remains. This is speaking in a metaphoric sense, but even so, if a debt is outstanding, the Lord will repay in vengeance concerning what is owed. It is a woeful thought indeed. Here, the first and second clauses are parallel, as are the third and fourth, but the latter two reverse the internal structure. A-A-B-B, if I whet brilliance my sword and grasps in judgment my hand, and then B, I return vengeance to my adversaries and to those hating me, I repay. He just turns the last two clauses around. Verse 42, I will make my arrows drunk with blood. Askir hitzai midam. I make drunk my arrows from blood. Here, Jehovah is as an archer set to shoot against the foe. When he does, it is as if the arrows are actually thirsty. And so the Lord fills them. But he does so to the point that they are utterly intoxicated from the banquet. And then... The sword is unsheathed again. Verse 42 continues, and my sword shall devour flesh. 
Vecharbi tokal basar, and my sword devours flesh. In Hebrew, the edge of the sword is considered its mouth. The word is P, its mouth. When we translate the edge of the sword, it actually says the mouth of the sword in the Hebrew. As such, it is a devourer, tearing in the flesh and consuming the life that it takes. This is the terrifying imagery that is considered right here. That imagery then extends on. Verse 42 continues with the blood of the slain and the captives. Midam halal veshivya, from blood slain and captives. The idea is that of the arrows standing in the bodies of the slain, draining them of blood, and the sword not sparing the captives as it turns from side to side. It is as a battle that sees the utter ruin of the enemy and all with him. And this extends on again. Verse 42 continues, from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. It is singular. Merosh parot oyev, from head freeman enemy. It's very difficult to be sure of the meaning of these words. There is a new and very rare word here, perra, which is the same as perra, meaning hair or locks. It is found only here and in Judges 5 verse 2, and it is absolutely uncertain what it means. However, Robert Young seems to have accurately defined it as freeman. Just as hair is free, you know, it's blowing and it just blows around. Hair is free and it becomes unkempt. So are these freed men. They would then be set in contrast to the captives of the previous clause. Instead of being bound, they are unkept and free. The words seem to be a standard AABB pattern. A, I make drunk my arrows from blood and my sword devours flesh. B, from blood slain and captives from head freeman enemy. It is easy to see in these verses the climactic return of Christ and his execution of judgment upon the armies gathered against Israel, which is recorded in Revelation 19. Woohoo! I can't wait for that day. With that now fully expressed, we come to the final verse of the song. It is a finishing call to the world who knows Jehovah that he has kept his covenant promises to this nation of disobedience by providing them the atonement that they do not in fact, deserve. With that in mind, verse 43, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Rejoice, you nations, his people. The word with is not included in the Hebrew, and thus it is probably better rendered nations than Gentiles. The reason this is important is that Paul cites this verse in Romans 15 and ascribes it to the Gentiles rejoicing with the Jews. That will be seen in our closing verse. As such, I would argue that this is referring to both Jews and Gentiles through the use of the word goy or nation. In other words, Israel is one nation among the nations. In saying, rejoice you nations, his people, it includes all nations, inclusive of Israel. This would then correspond to Revelation 21, 24, which is clearly inclusive of both. And the nations, all of them, of those who are saved, shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Verse 43 continues, For he will avenge the blood of his servants, Kitam abadav yikom, for blood his servants he will avenge. This refers to the repayment of the ill treatment of God's people during the tribulation period. 
It is spoken of as a call to God in Revelation 6.10. It is then stated as an accomplishment in Revelation 18.20. And it is then referred to again in Revelation 19 verse 2. Next, it says, verse 43 continues, and render vengeance to his adversaries. Venakam yashiv letzara, and vengeance he returns to his adversaries. It is again a clear presentation of what is more formally expressed in Revelation, as well as throughout the writings of the prophets. Those who come against the people of God will receive their just due, which will come in due time. All things must find their place in the unfolding events, and they will be accomplished without one being missed. Verse 43 finishes with these words. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. And he has atoned his earth, his people. Rather than eretz or land, the word adama or earth is used. Both are often used interchangeably, and both are variously translated. But Adama gives the sense of the ground, coming from the same word as Adam, the man who is taken from the ground. That then extends to the entire earth, all of which required atonement for the worldwide shedding of blood, especially coming in the tribulation period. One must understand the reference to understand what is being conveyed. As such, the words, his people, extend to all who are saved out of the tribulation, either through death or through entering into the millennium. It is a complete atonement for what occurred. Only when this is accomplished will Israel be able to take its rightful position as the head of the nations. At that time, the promises prophesied both about and to them will find their fulfillment. It will happen, and it cannot be otherwise. The Lord has spoken, and what he has said in his word will come to pass. This final verse repeats the A-B-B-A pattern used earlier in the song. This one has a contrasting parallel in the middle two verses. A, rejoice you nations, his people. And then B-B, for blood his servants he will avenge, and vengeance he returns to his adversaries. And then it goes back to A, and he has atoned his earth, his people. As this song now comes to its ending, It is a good time to note that the Song of Moses is referred to in Revelation 15. There it says the following. They sing the Song of Moses, the servant of God, and the Song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. In this chapter of Revelation, John noted those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name. He also noted that they had harps of God. Of them, he next said, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. The term servant of God is fittingly applied to Moses, having been called the Lord's servant several times in the Old Testament. That's in Exodus 14, Numbers 12, and Psalm 105. He is referred to in this manner in Hebrews 3, 5 as well. Of this, Ruckman says, Here is another verse that proves no Christian goes through the tribulation. The people in verse 2, which he got wrong there, sing the song of Moses, the Mosaic law, and the song of the Lamb, Jesus Christ dying for sinners. John 129, that is works and faith. No Christian has any business singing the song of Moses at all. While it is true that the pre-tribulation Christian believers will not go through the tribulation in part or in whole, The logic Ruckman uses is faulty. 
Citing the Song of Moses is not a works-based statement. Rather, it is a note of fulfilled prophecy. There are two songs of Moses recorded in the Old Testament. The first is in Exodus 15, when the children of Israel were led out of bondage and through the Red Sea to safety. The great world power that had hold over Israel was crushed and defeated by the Lord. The second is recorded right here in Deuteronomy 32. It details the history of the people of Israel from the time they enter the promised land through to the very ending of the ages. Which song of Moses is being referred to? Actually, both fit the mold of what is said. However, it is surely the latter song that is first and foremost being considered in Revelation. The people in the Revelation verse are those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name. In the final verse of the song recorded in Deuteronomy 32, we just finished with these words. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. To ensure that we don't make the error that Ruckman made, Paul even cites this verse in Romans 15.10 when speaking of believers in the church age. Moses prophesied of a time when the Gentiles would rejoice along with the people of Israel. That time came when Christ fulfilled and annulled the Mosaic covenant, set it aside, and established the new covenant in his blood. Further, the words of Deuteronomy 32 refer to avenging the blood of his servants. This is exactly what is being pictured in the Revelation martyrs standing on the glassy sea. Thus, both Jews and Gentiles can sing the song of Moses. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And the song of the Lamb, you are worthy to take the scroll, as is recorded in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. Though the two songs of Moses are different songs, the words of Moses in both songs ultimately refer to the work of Jesus Christ. Thus, songs such as are found in Exodus 15, Deuteronomy 32, and Revelation 5 all build upon the same theme. It is the greatness of the Lord God. That is what is being considered. As for Israel, in relation to the words of this song, none of what replacement theology teaches concerning the nation makes any sense at all when it is taken in the proper light of what Moses pens. And when this song is taken in its proper light, everything that is occurring in the world or that will come to pass in it correctly aligns with what the Lord is doing. Nothing could be clearer from what has been said here. But what has been said here only builds upon everything else Moses has been saying since the very start of Deuteronomy. He's not speaking to the church, and the Gentiles are only included in what is going on. They are not the main focus of it. Jesus Christ is the main focus, and it is his coming to his own people, Israel, to be received by them that is anticipated. When that didn't happen on his first advent, the narrative neither stopped nor was it in error. That was simply an anticipated part of the whole. God has remained, and he continues to remain faithful to his part of the covenant, even when Israel has consistently failed at theirs. Let us pray that before the terrifying times foreshadowed in these verses come to pass, many, both Jews and Gentiles, will turn and call out for his saving hand. May it be so to the glory of God who has determined all things to be. During the Prophecy Update today, I talked about the Jewish guide that's sending out 
literature to Jewish people all over the place, and they're just taking it, throw it in the garbage, and they're just ignoring the word of the Lord. He came to the Lord Jesus, his life was changed, and he wants his people to know about it. And before I spoke, Jody spoke, and she talked about Ray and Jess Willett over in Papua New Guinea, having given their lives away for the sake of people coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're in a land that is inhospitable. They're around people. Their children don't have anybody else to play with. They have to learn a new language. It's very hard to make friends with these people. And they are doing it because they believe that the message of Jesus Christ is true and that their lives are not worth staying here and just hiding behind churchism. They're worth giving away for the gospel that will save those people so that they can be counted among the people of the Lord. This is important. These things are important. People will belittle that Jewish guy and say he's wasting his time and money. Hey, if one person takes his book and reads it and says, I believe what he has said and I want to know more from the Bible, I want Jesus, it is worth it. He's got $42 million to spend. He might as well spend it somewhere. Spend it on something of value because everything on this planet is going to be destroyed by fire. There's going to be nothing left. Isaiah said that I will destroy man. How does he say it? I will make man as rare as fine gold. There's not going to be much left when the tribulation period ends. So everything that we do right now that we do for the Lord Jesus counts. It doesn't matter how small it is. It counts. We got tracks on the wall there. Grab them. Hand them out. Give them to people. Just hand them out. If they don't read them, if they throw them away in front of you, so what? Hand out another one. Talk to people about Jesus because the time is growing short. And you can't know Jesus without knowing this word. I keep saying it again and again. I say it in commentaries. I say it at the Bible studies. I say it at the end of sermons. If you don't know your Bible, anybody can tell you anything. Next thing you know, you're sitting in a Mormon church or in the Jehovah's Witnesses because you haven't paid attention. It's the same as any other church. It's not. It's important that you understand what is going on. Is Jesus God or is he not? Is Joseph Smith a prophet? Did he receive another gospel or not? These are important issues. And if you're not pursuing the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are of no help to this church. Zero. And I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about the superior word. You're of no help at all if you're not participating in getting this word out. So please do it. Get the word out. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again. That's the gospel right there. According to scripture, it says he died for your sins, implying that you're a sinner. He was buried, meaning he went into the grave. I had two people email me about what I say every week. Well, the only thing left in the grave is your sins. And they say, well, where is that in the Bible? Well, let me take you there. Right here in Colossians, I think it's in chapter two. This might take a second if I waste your time. So what? Um, chapter two. Yeah, here it is right here. In him, you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Well, if you are buried with him in sin and you are raised without sin, then your sins are in the grave. Obviously, sins aren't a thing. It's a metaphor. It's speech saying you're out of the grave and there's nothing left of your sin. So where are they? They're in the grave. Okay. Call on Jesus. Be forgiven of your sins. 
let them stay in the grave and you go to heaven, okay? Our closing verse comes from Romans 15. I said I was going to cite this to you. Here we are. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises he made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. For this reason, I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. You see where Ruckman is wrong? He's speaking to the Gentiles. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. It's not one or the other, it's both. It's just that the first ones didn't get it the first time. And so he's going to have to bring them in through the covenant. How's he going to do it? By what we just saw in our Song of Moses today. The last few verses of this song show everything that is happening right now in the world. Open your newspaper. It is happening right now. I talked about some of it during the report today. And it's going to happen until two-thirds of Israel are extinguished. And then they're going to realize they were wrong. Tell these people about him now. Don't be afraid. They need Jesus. Next week is Deuteronomy 32, 44 through 52. Moses, you will die outside of the promise, sadly. It's entitled, Because You Did Not Hallow Me. That'll be our 98th Deuteronomy sermon. Now, remember, everything in the Bible, in one way or another, is based on or built upon typology. Moses is the lawgiver. Here's the land of promise, heaven. Okay, they're pictures, right? The law cannot get you into heaven. And so Moses dies outside of the promise. Everybody see that typology? It's so clear when you see what's going on. Israel will never get here through this. They need Jesus. And what is Jesus pictured by? The Jordan River, the descender, coming from heaven, going down all the way to the sea, the salt sea, giving his life for the people. And it's through him that we enter into the promise. Everything points to Jesus in one way or another. His fulfillment of the law, his crossing through, the land of promises opened up to us because of him. Great stuff. Okay, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? All right. Before we get into our poem, I've got a question. My friend Bob helped me out with this. He gave me a question here. Why don't you ask one of these? And I picked this one. And I'm not going to make it as hard as he did. You guys would not have gotten it, okay? <laughs> I, I, I made it easier. There are three verses that note that Jesus wept or cried with tears. Name two of them. You don't have to name the verses. Just name where it says this. Lazarus is one. You have to give me two. If you just call out one, it doesn't help. You have to know two of them. Yeah. Well, nobody got it. You got one of them, but I wasn't asking for one. I'm asking for two. Okay. Got it. Okay. The first one is in Luke 19.41. Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. So I won't read that. Everybody got that one. Okay. The next one is in John 11.35. It's also recorded elsewhere, but I'm going to take you to John. And it's in John... The same thought is recorded elsewhere, but John 11, uh, come on, this, the pages here are really hard to get through. What's that? He was coming as 
coming into the city. That's exactly, and he wept over Jerusalem. Absolutely right. And then the last one, I'll just kind of read you the substance of it. Hebrews 5, 7, it says that with many tears, he wept, okay? I, I, that's a paraphrase, okay? But there it says he did. So those are the three cases. Nobody got it, but I'm going to give you a bonus slap on the back when you come by because you got that one later. That's correct. Okay, so Ray is our hero for today. You know, Ray got, some of you weren't here at the time, but Ray got the most difficult question I think I've ever asked, and he didn't bat an eye when he got it. I was talking about where is a parallax mentioned in the New Testament, and he shouted it out before I could even finish. I couldn't believe it. Read your Bible. Okay, the Song of Moses, part five. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? So it is, and so it shall be. Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them for their crime. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. Yes, compassion from me. When he sees that their power is gone, there is no one remaining, neither bond nor free. He will say, where are their gods whom they have bought? The rock in which they refuge sought. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. Let them do this thing. Now see that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. This you shall understand. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven, changing never, and say, as I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment just and plainly, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh for all to see with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, his wayward sheeple and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the song of Moses. It is such a reassuring thing to read it, to understand the absolute unworthiness of Israel as a people, and yet you have preserved them, and you will preserve them all the way to the end of history. And that shows the greatness of you. When we break your covenant, you are faithful to keep it. And that shows us that we have a sure and eternal salvation because Israel is just a template of who we are. We are the ones that entered into the covenant with you, and yet we violated it five seconds after we agreed to it. We've sinned, we've erred, we've strayed, we have not been faithful to you. Our mind has been on everything but you, and yet you continue to save us. You continue to keep your promise to us, and you will bring us to yourself someday. How great are you, O oh God. Thank you for the lesson of Israel, your unfaithful people, that tells us of us, your unfaithful people. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who remains faithful forever. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.